Okay. Our distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 28th Kenneth Meyer Lecture, generously supported by the Meyer Foundation. My name is Murray-Louise Ayres and I'm privileged to be the Director-General of the National Library of Australia. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. I thank their elders, past, present and emerging, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call home. The Kenneth Meyer Lecture began in 1990 as a major annual event for the Friends of the, Library, of the National Library of Australia. The lecture was named for Kenneth Bailey Meyer, AC, Chairman of the National Library Council from 1974 to 1982 and a long-time friend of the library. Kenneth Meyer was a visionary Australian philanthropist and businessman. He contributed to an extensive range of institutions and causes through significant personal donations, enthusiastic participation on boards and his involvement in the Sydney Meyer Fund and the Meyer Foundation. A generous supporter of the National Library of Australia, Meyer was in fact a founding member of the National Library Council in 1961, prior to serving as its chairman from 1974 to 1982, so you can see how long this relationship has been. In 1989, he was the recipient of the Australian Library and Information Association Redmond Barry Award for his service to libraries. For 28 years, the Kenneth Meyer Lecture at the National Library of Australia has provided eminent Australians with a forum to speak their minds and contribute to national debates. The lecture has been presented by a range of thought leaders, from the Honourable Gough Whitlam, ACQC, to Professor Fiona Stanley, ACFAA, and most recently, former Australian of the Year, Professor McDodson, AM, Fasser, and arts and media champion, Mr Kim Williams, AM. The lecture series would simply not be possible without the support of Kenneth Meyer himself, the Meyer family, and since 2015, the Meyer Foundation. So on behalf of my colleagues and of you who get to benefit from this lecture every year, I offer heartfelt thanks to the director of the Meyer Foundation and its CEO, Leonard Vary, who is here with us tonight, for the Foundation's continuing support of the lecture. Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr Anne Summers, AO, to deliver the 2017 Kenneth Meyer Lecture. Anne is a best-selling author, journalist and thought leader who's had a long career in politics, the media, business and the non-government sector. She's the author of eight books, including the classic Damned Whores and God's Police, first published in 1975. It seems impossible to me that it's the case. She's been editor-in-chief of Ms., the landmark US feminist magazine, and her 1988 purchase of Ms. and Sassy magazines with business partner Sandra Yates remains one of only two women-led management buyouts in US corporate history. So there's a record waiting to be broken by somebody else, I think. Her professional life has seen her run the Office for the Status of Women, now the Office for Women, during the Hawke government, and she also advised former Prime Minister Paul Keating on women's and other issues in the lead-up to the 1993 election. 
on matters of gender equality, social responsibility and social justice, and some as articulate journalism, politics and activism have called us all to account. Now, some of you may have um, had the experience of listening to Anne this morning while you were having your breakfast Wheaties or you were driving to work, and therefore you have a little taste of the treat that's to come uh, for us tonight. So, without further ado, please welcome Dr Anne Summers, AO, to present the 2017 Kenneth Meyer Lecture titled 2020 Vision, Where is Australia Headed? Thank you, Anne. Thank you very much. It's uh, wonderful to be back in Canberra, particularly in this building, which is one of my favourite spots. Um, Dr Mary Louise Ayres, thank you for that introduction. Very generous. Uh, friends of the National Library and other distinguished guests, men and women of Canberra. Thank you for inviting me to deliver the 2017 Kenneth Meyer Lecture this evening. In honouring the memory of Kenneth Meyer, I want to acknowledge his love for the institution where we meet tonight, the National Library of Australia. His love was manifested in practical ways, including, as we've just heard, financial, that, among other things, provided funding for this annual lecture. In sharing some thoughts with you tonight, I want to pay tribute to the kind of philanthropy that fosters ideas, because tonight I will be talking about ideas. All philanthropy is important and, of course, welcome, but donating to a hospital or an animal conservancy does not carry with it the risks inherent in making funds available to foster ideas. You never know where ideas are going to take you. But it is ideas this country currently and urgently needs. And, just as importantly, we need guidance on how to turn these ideas into the kind of changes this country so desperately needs, and that is what I'm going to talk about this evening. Before I do so, let me acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land we are meeting on, the Ngunnawal people. I acknowledge and respect their continuing culture and the contribution they make to the life of this city and this region, and I also acknowledge any other uh, and, and welcome any other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be attending this evening. I'd also like to express my support for Makarata, the process that would formally ensure the voices of Australia's First Nations are included in our constitution, as outlined recently in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. What I'd like to lay out for your consideration this evening is the idea that Australia is in need of reconstruction. I'm calling it New Century Reconstruction. Reconstruction is something that we have undergone before, so it's not an alien concept, even if it is more than seven decades since we last attempted it. There are parallels between the Australia that decided to plan its post-war reconstruction and Australia today. In 1942, the government established a post-war reconstruction ministry. As described by Professor Stuart McIntyre, its functions encompass the preparation of plans for the transition from a wartime to a peacetime economy, along with a collaborative role in re-establishment of members of the services and war workers, the disposal of wartime buildings, plant and equipment, 
the maintenance and expansion of employment and the national income, the prevention of want and attainment of social security, and the development and conservation of the nation's resources. In 2017, we need, in my view, to prepare plans for the transition from the analogue to the digital economy, from the manufacturing to the services economy, from the no-tech to the very high-tech, along with a collaborative role in the re-establishment of workers from displaced, disrupted or superseded industries, the disposal of the old economy, mines, plants and equipment, the maintenance and expansion of the national income and the design of post-employment occupations for the population, the prevention of want and the restoration of social security, the development and conservation of the nation's resources, physical, natural and human. The challenges are remarkably similar. I will expand on this idea later in my remarks, but for now I just want to note that what I have in mind is a larger and even more encompassing project than the post-war reconstruction that was undertaken in the 1940s. In the 2020s, we will need not just economic and social reconstruction, we will also need emotional and even spiritual reconstruction. We will need to rebuild our society to equip ourselves for the challenges of the future and to address the failures of the present. And in order to do this, we need to be emotionally and spiritually strong. We need to be up for what we have to do. When I decided to call this lecture 2020 Vision, I was thinking of a timetable. I was thinking not so much of a deadline, an end date, as a starting date for the new century reconstruction. This is less than three years away. It's urgent. But as well as being a timetable, 2020 Vision describes something else. It's a measure of vision. When we visit the autometrist and have our eyesight measured, according to the Snellen chart, if we're lucky enough to have 2020 vision, which I certainly don't have, we're considered normal. We do not need corrective glasses or contact lenses. We need such a test for our country as well. Not just to test our national vision, although it's a pity it's not possible to do that, but to measure what kind of corrections that overall, as a country, we need. As I will argue for the remainder of this lecture, I'm of the view that we are in need of severe correction. If we were a person, we might well be considered legally blind. We have no idea what sort of country we want to be. Unless we take urgent action, we will be entering the third decade of the 21st century directionless and unfocused in a world that is in chaos today and likely to remain so. That is why I am advocating new century reconstruction. But first, let's look at what's wrong with the way things are. Let me summarise. There are three basic points that I would, I think, can summarise, it up, summarise what's wrong. Firstly, the benefits and the burdens of our society are unfairly distributed. Secondly, as individuals, we lack agency to change this. And thirdly, we have no plan to make Australia fairer or more efficient. We lack the policies to guide us, our political leaders are inept and our institutions for the most part are incapable or prevented from serving us in the way that is needed. 
Now, if that sounds a bit harsh, let us consider the following. Australia does not have a clear economic policy. We have an economic record, and a very strong one. We are, as Donald Horne pointed out in the 1960s, a lucky country. In fact, we are unbelievably lucky in that our winning streak has lasted so long. Our living standards and well-being are generally high, the OECD noted in its most recent survey of the Australian economy, although it cautioned that challenges remain in gender gaps and in greenhouse gas emissions and further challenges arise from population ageing. Further challenges lie in our ongoing inability to manage microeconomic policy, for instance, budget policy and institutional reform. In other important areas, we have no discernible policy at all. I'd just like to note that tonight I'm talking only about domestic policy. I can only hope that we are better served when it comes to defence and foreign affairs, particularly in these current extremely perilous times. Let's look at some of them. We have no employment strategy. Sorry, we have no employment policy. We have various strategies for creating jobs for people in situations such as leaving prison, transitioning from welfare or leaving school. But I am unaware of an overriding policy that addresses unemployment, underemployment, threats to employment from global outsourcing, declining industries, hello coal, uh, let alone robotics, artificial intelligence and other instances of digital disruption. Even before we factor in the looming impact of the digital economy, we have performed poorly. We have, an average, we have averaged an unemployment rate of 6.9% since the late 1970s. We have massive underutilisation of our workforce, especially of women. With women making up 71.6% of all part-time employees, we have the third highest rate of female part-time employment in the OECD. 25% of women in Australia working part-time against the OECD average of 16%. If we drill down further into employment, unemployment and underemployment by region, by age, by population group, especially among Indigenous Australians, the picture is even bleaker. All of this underutilisation has consequences for individual financial wellbeing and for national GDP. We have no population policy and we exhibit a marked reluctance to adopt one. It is literally the policy that dare not speak its name. We don't want to have the conversation about a big Australia versus a sustainable Australia because it's a fight, not a discussion, and we seem unable to reconcile the two sides. Our fertility rate, births per woman, remains stubbornly below replacement le levels and nothing will change that. The Howard government's baby bonus, together with Treasurer Peter Costello's exhortation in 2004 to women to have one for mum, one for dad and one for the country, did uh, produce a 15-year high fertility rate of 1.90 by 2006. Uh, but it lasted for just six years and has not returned to those levels since. It is currently 1.77 which a visiting Canadian commentator in 2016 said puts us in a demographic death spiral. We rely on immigration to grow our population and keep it younger than it otherwise would be, but this is an inconvenient truth in an environment where immigration levels are a volatile, 
political issue. The mass movement of people across borders, across and within borders, is one of the biggest issues of our time. It is a confronting and complex matter, involving millions of people moving from their homes to other people's, in the process causing resentment, anger and pushback. And I'm just talking about tourism. <laughs> in recent years, towns in Italy and in Spain have taken steps to limit the number of tourists who descend on them each summer, putting pressure on local facilities, pushing up housing costs, creating crowding and inconvenience that is not always sufficiently compensated by the tourist dollar. This problem is perhaps most evident in Venice, where each year 20 million tourists invade this city of just 50,000 residents. Each day, thousands of people are disgorged from enormous cruise liners to roam the narrow streets and canals, gawking at famous sites, snapping selfies in front of iconic landmarks, then returning to their boats for their prepaid meals. A large number of these tourists are just day-trippers, so they contribute nothing to the hotel economy, but they are wreaking huge damage on the fragile ecosystem of this marvellous city. San Sebastian in northern Spain is another town that is pulling up the welcome sign as tourism becomes a burden rather than a bounty. Tourists are now confronted with signs such as, ''Tourist, you are the terrorist.'' or tourists go home, refugees welcome. <laughs> this particular sign, of course, highlights the other mass movement of people into Europe, the flood of refugees and asylum seekers from Africa and the Middle East. This has become a political nightmare for most countries of Europe. Immigration is a tinderbox issue in France, Belgium, Germany and the Scandinavian countries, and there is a pronounced absence of political solutions. And speaking of immigration, what is our immigration policy? It's another of those dare-not-speak-its-name areas. Net overseas migration now accounts for 55% of our population growth, but we don't mention that in public. Immigration policy has been conflated and confused with refugee policy, and our political leaders have seemingly encouraged this by subsuming immigration within the Department of Border Protection. Now, with the proposed Department of Homeland Security about to swallow up that department, immigration will perhaps only be viewed in future via border protection and security lens. How will this affect our population's growth and age if we lose sight of the demographic imperatives of continued immigration? I could go through any number of policy deficits. What is our cyber policy, our cultural policy, our energy policy, our digital policy, our income and wages policy, our housing policy, our retirement incomes policy, our welfare policy, our industry policy, our environment policy? There are undoubtedly many other areas and issues where spending and decisions are made without the benefit of an overarching policy. Instead, decisions are taken on an ad hoc basis, perhaps influenced by ideological, ideological conviction, budget constraints or lobbying, rather than driven by an articulated, well-argued and publicly available policy. The absence of policy means reduced accountability because there are no benchmarks or goals 
against which activity can be measured. Absence of policy also means that government occurs within a vacuum rather than within an electorally endorsed framework that defines our national aspirations and priorities. <coughs> now, while I'm quite confident that our political leaders are sincere when they say they are governing in the national interest, I wonder if any of them can tell us what the national interest actually is. At the same time, we voters have reduced agency. We have little or no power to even confirm, let alone decide, the kind of country we want to be and how we're going to get there. At election time, when political parties seek a mandate to govern on our behalf, the recent tendency is for party leaders to speak in slogans. We get to decide our future on the basis of a catchy phrase, a string of words. We, have, we vote for nouns. Jobs and growth. Border protection debt and deficit, whatever they might mean. As voters, we have not endorsed a direction, let alone a policy. And most of us have no power at all. Most of us live in safe seats and are therefore totally ignored by the political parties. They put all their efforts into wooing those in seats where a change of mind by a few hundred or even a few dozen could determine an election result. Elsewhere in the world, we've seen a minority of population, seen the votes, <coughs> excuse me, the votes of a minority of a population deliver calamitous outcomes. I'm thinking of Brexit and the election of Donald Trump as President of the United States. Our system has seen parties win government without, without winning a majority of votes, and we know that senators can be elected with just a handful of primary votes. But at least in the House of Representatives, we are protected against a minority government determined, determining... Sorry, we are protected against a small minority determining who sits on the Treasury benches. However, as citizens, we have no influence on who is nominated for pre-selection by our parties. We have no redress if we feel that those who are nominated and who sit in the Parliament are increasingly unrepresentative of popular opinion on contentious issues such as climate change, same-sex marriage or abortion. If we feel politically marooned, all we can do is protest, seek out third-party candidates or join in the wave of so-called populism. Once in power, our governments are becoming less accountable by being less transparent. There are a number of disturbing examples of this. A great deal of policy is now outsourced. The beneficiaries of this practice, including the accounting firms, especially the so-called Big Four, uh, they have seen their expansion into government consultancy bring in lucrative returns. Just in the past three years, these four companies have been paid $1 billion to do work that was once done in the public service. Senator Nick Xenophon has called for public disclosure of the details of, these policy, of the policy work done under these contracts. It seems extraordinary that this is not public information. While our democracy is not challenged or overtly threatened in the same way as is happening in countries such as Turkey and the United States, we should still be worried about unaccountable and possibly corrupt practices. We do have the covert subversion of democratic processes where governments are influenced in their decision-making by the efforts of lobbyists for special interests. Often, 
perhaps more than we realise, these influences are not disclosed. Sometimes they are even disguised so that the opposition, the media, the electorate and, I suspect, even the government is not always aware of who is pushing for particular outcomes. They are not open to any kind of scrutiny and therefore none of us are any the wiser when a particular decision may have resulted from what lobbyists like to brag about as fingerprintless campaigns. Also of great concern should be recent examples of ministers going straight from the Cabinet room to post-parliamentary employment with companies directly affected by their former portfolios. Andrew Robb, the Trade Minister in the last Government, took an 880,000 job with a Chinese trade company days after the 2016 election. And just this week, it's been revealed that Bruce Bilson, the Minister for Small Business until the 2016 election, was actually in the payroll of his future employer, the franchise lobby, while still sitting at the Cabinet table. It's time to change all this. Now, I think we can learn quite a lot about how to approach this massive project from the post-war reconstruction model and the people who made it happen. There are three ways in which it is still a relevant model despite the lapse of more than 70 years. First, it was a set of policies based on values. The values drove the approach and led to the creation of the institutions, such as the Commonwealth Employment Service, funding for housing, hospitals and universities, social security benefits and the insistence on economic planning for the better, betterment of the population. H.C. Coombs, of course known as Nugget Coombs, who in early 1943, at the age of 37, was put in charge of the Ministry of Post-War Reconstruction, described his brief in the following terms, and I quote, Widening opportunity for all was to be the criterion by which policies were judged. The task was to ensure an economic and social context in which positive opportunities were present, rather than merely the absence of constraints. Freedom is opportunity, might have been the watchword. The program was, he wrote in his autobiography, Trial Balance, an instrument of social change. Second, the people who staffed the ministry were exemplars of the, new, of the then new model for public service. They were professional and idealistic. They were led by Nugget Coombs, who was one of the most outstanding people this country has produced. He shaped Australia in ways that are almost beyond measure in the policies and practices and institutions that he influenced or directed, uh, from the Reserve Bank to the Australia Council uh, to the Australian National University, and in the many people across more than one generation that he befriended, advised and guided. Ken Meyer was one of these. Ken sought out Nugget for advice and what today we would call mentoring. He was influenced by Coombe's belief that wealth ought to be more equally distributed and that people in commerce and industry had a responsibility financially to support the arts. The two met frequently, starting in the 1960s and continuing until Ken's untimely death in Alaska in 1992. Ken's son, Michael Meyer, was an avid listener to many of their conversations, and he has said that Coombe's, and I quote, expanded Dad's universe and made him more politically aware. 
Nugget Coombs also delivered the second Kenneth Meyer lecture in 1991. As we've heard already, the first was delivered by Gough Whitlam. And I should also note that Nugget Coombs' papers are held by the National Library of Australia. Today's issues are both similar and different, although the magnitude of the reconstruction task is, I believe, comparable. We need the kind of dedicated and visionary people who are committed to public service and to the betterment of Australia to carry out our new century reconstruction. We have plenty of such people, but they need to be encouraged and empowered. They will also be different from the men of the 1940s. They were all white, mostly Anglo, and although they were progressive for their times, today's policy architects would both be more diverse themselves and would take into account a broader range of social and personal issues than were seen as necessary back then. Coombs and his generation saw the need to encourage wide-scale immigration, although this initially was only from Europe. The white Australia policy was still in place. They also recognised the need to, to deliver justice and empowerment to Australian Aborigines, and indeed sought the extension of Commonwealth powers to do this and many other reforms uh, to the uh, powers of the Commonwealth in the referendum of 1944, which was, of course, rejected. But that generation was blind to women's equality. Although women were employed in the ministry, including in some senior economic roles, they did not receive the same recognition, nor probably the same pay, as the men whose names are forever associated with that era. In those days, when women were asked for advice, it was only on women's issues. For instance, during the panic about the declining birth rate, Dame Enid Lyons and Lady Salento were asked in 1944 by the Director General of Health, who was working in concert with post-war reconstruction, to report on childbearing. Today, we would expect expertise to exist across gender lines. A new century reconstruction will have different premises about inclusion and the diversity of the country. Australia is a very different place from the small, frightened country of just 7.2 million people in the 1940s. It is now much larger, more populous and far more diverse, with all of our citizens rightly demanding to be heard and to be valued. But Australia is, again, a frightened country. Many of our fellow citizens are dismayed by the changes that have occurred, the loss of jobs, the size and composition of our immigrant population, the impact of technological change. These fears are driving many people to the fringes of politics as our leaders fail or are unable to understand and manage the pace of change in modern Australia. This is another and urgent reason why we need reconstruction. The third reason why I think the post-war reconstruction model is still relevant is that the work was conducted and the policies implemented while the business of government went on. Indeed, they did so during the most difficult years of the Second World War, when Australia was under attack, rationing and civil conscription were in place, and the entire society was in a state not just of tremendous upheaval, but in fear for its very survival. Today's disruption barely compares with that inflicted by the war, but we feel it nevertheless, and we have to deal with it and find ways to reconstruct and reform while continuing to manage the day-to-day -day economy and affairs of state.
Now, I've only been able to give the barest outline of why I think we need reconstruction and how it might happen, but I would like to give two specific, two specific examples of how we might go about starting the process of a values or principles-driven approach to policy making and change. First is the Uluru Statement from the Heart, released on May 26, 2017, by the Reconciliation Council, that sets out the principles of sovereignty that would form the basis of a genuine reconciliation between all Australians. That statement can and should guide the specific policy steps that are needed to achieve this. Now, my second example is far more detailed. I would like to conclude by taking you through the Women's Manifesto, which is a document that I have written and which I released on March the 8th, 2017. The Women's Manifesto does not have the endorsement of a wide community as the Uluru Statement does, but the many audiences to whom I've presented it since the, its launch on International Women's Day this year have responded with approval and acclaim. I'm presenting it as a policy tool in its own right, but also as a template for other areas of policy. I should also add the caution that because it was written as a manifesto rather than just as a policy document, it's written in the language of advocacy. I could have translated it into bureaucraties, but I decided it was not necessary because the felt need for change is as legitimate a driver as any other. Now, the manifesto lays out the four principles of women's equality. And these are, one, financial self-sufficiency. Two, reproductive freedom. Three, freedom from violence. And four, the right of women to participate fully and equally in all areas of public life. Now, I contend that everything that is needed in order for women to achieve full equality can be, can be subsumed within these four basic principles. Policies are, of course, needed to implement them. And so I have summarised what those policies would be as follows. So in order to achieve financial self-sufficiency, which I define as being having enough money or the means to earn it, to not have to rely on anyone else to survive or thrive, in order to have that, to be financially self-sufficient and therefore not dependent on a husband or other person to provide the basics of life, or to have the option of leaving if a relationship isn't working, girls need 12 years of school education that is equal to boys. Girls and young women must then have the same opportunities as boys and young men to enter post-school education at university or technical college. They must be free to study any and all subjects and be encouraged to test themselves and branch out from areas that traditionally have attracted more women than men. If they wish, women should be able to pursue postgraduate education and be able to combine that with having a family, if that is their choice. Women need to have the same employment opportunities and conditions as men, including full-time employment. Women must receive equal pay and equal opportunities for promotion, for training opportunities and for other benefits of their place of employment. Women must be free from sexual harassment and pregnancy discrimination. Childcare must be available, flexible, affordable and shared between all parents. Women must have the right to keep their jobs while pregnant and to get paid parental leave when they take time off from their jobs to have the baby. Women must receive superannuation, including while on paid parental leave, 
and, if necessary, receive top-ups from either government or employers during their working life to ensure they have adequate retirement incomes. <coughs> Secondly, reproductive freedom, and by that I mean the ability to, the ability to determine when and if to have children. This will be achieved by women having access to effective and affordable contraception backed up by safe, legal and affordable abortion. Women must have access to health services, including screening and care for female-specific conditions such as breast, ovarian and cervical cancer and other services needed to ensure sexual health. Women also need to be able to secure pre- and postnatal care for their maternal health and that of their baby. Three, freedom from violence. And by that I mean our bodies and our minds must be our own. Women must be safe from rape and other forms of sexual assault and must have the right to be believed and their complaint taken seriously if they suffer attack. Women must have access to laws that adequately address all crimes of violence and legal services that enable them to seek advice, advice and legal redress if they choose. Women must be free from domestic and family violence of all kinds, physical, psychological, financial and any other type of controlling and domineering behaviour on the part of a family member or intimate partner. Where needed, women must have ready access to emergency crisis services, including women's refuges, in order to be safe from violence and other threats. Four, equal representation and participation in public life. And by that I mean we should be part of all decision-making in our society. Women should participate fully in all areas of our society's public and economic life. They must be represented fully and fairly at every level of government, including the public service, in the companies that make up our economy, the not-for-profit sector, arts organisations, trade unions, the military and the churches. Now, this is the deceptively simple agenda. I like to say it's simple, but that it will not be easy to achieve. Every single aspect of it requires laws, policies, programs or other elements to make each goal realisable. So it's simple, but not easy. To show how the principles of the manifesto can be realised, I've drawn up four specific policies, one of them from each of the four principles. I recommend that these four reforms be implemented by 2022, which will mark 50 years since the election of the Whitlam government, the first government in Australia to commit to women's equality as a national policy objective. Implementation of these four policies would in itself represent progress in achieving the principles of women's equality. In addition, they would lay down markers for the full equality that would result from implementing the Women's Manifesto in its entirety. These four specific policies are, one, legislated equal pay for all women in all jobs. Two, decriminalisation of abortion in New South Wales and Queensland. Three, specialist domestic violence courts in every state in Australia. And four, gender quotas dictating that women make up 50% of all parliamentarians, all cabinets, and other ministries and directors of all public companies and government boards. Okay, let me spell them out. Number one, legislated equal pay. 
It is unconscionable that in 2017, Australian women still earn on average 20% less than men. In some jobs and some industries, the gender pay gap is even greater. As Mary Gordon, the first woman to sit on the High Court of Australia, famously said in 1979, equal pay was won in 1969 and again in 1972 and yet again in 1974. Now, it's 43 years since women first won equal pay. It's 37 years since Mary Gordon pointed out that women still don't have it. The industrial court system has failed to deliver, so it is now up to the federal parliament to legislate mandating equal pay for all women in all jobs. The Leader of the Opposition has said he is prepared to legislate to restore penalty rates abolished by the Fair Work Commission. If he can do it for penalty rates, he can do it for equal pay. So could the Government. It is constitutionally possible. All it needs is political will. Number two, and this is to go towards implementing the second principle, the second principle of women's equality, which is reproductive freedom, and that is the decriminalisation of abortion in New South Wales and Queensland. Every other Australian state and territory, including the ACT, has decriminalised abortion. It's time for New South Wales and Queensland to do so as well. Thirdly, and this, this policy goes towards implementing the third um, principle, which is freedom from violence, and that is specialist domestic violence courts in every state. Now, this is already happening in Queensland, as a result of recommendations made by the Task Force on Domestic and Family Violence, headed by Quentin Bryce in 2014-2015. Following the successful trialling of such a court in Southport during 2015, the Queensland Premier made a commitment to create four other courts in major centres across the state. Such special... And I understand that they have already opened... Um, such specialist courts can provide expert handling of domestic violence cases, as well as shining a spotlight on the extent and, sever and severity of such violence across Australia. And then finally, number four, uh, the, the specific policy towards uh, implementing the principle of equal representation in public life. Gender quotas dictating women make up 50% of all parliamentarians, cabinet and other ministers and directors of public companies and government boards. Now, it's clear that increased representation of women in all decision-making organisations in our society is not going to happen organically. If so, it already have happened. Women have been graduating from universities in greater numbers than men since the 1980s, so there is no case to be made that women continue to lack merit or experience. Were merit the sole basis for appointments, women would already outnumber men. Affirmative action in the form of quotas, planning in other words, is the only way to ensure that the best talent available leads organisations and to do so means including the group that makes up 50% of the population. Now, if this were Federal Parliament, I would conclude by saying I commend the Bill to the House. <laughs> of course, we are at a lecture, um, not seeing in a, a deliberative forum, perhaps more is the pity. I wouldn't mind putting it to the vote. Um, so I'll finish simply by saying that I appreciate the opportunity to lay out some ideas to help us grapple with and solve the problems facing Australia. I hope that they are ideas of which Ken Meyer would approve. I'm sure that he would at least support the notion of putting them forward. As I hope I have outlined, social ch major social change does not happen by itself. 
We need to entrust competent and selfless people to design it, meticulously and in line with our values, in order to create the kind of society we want. We need to do it. We've done it before, and I sincerely hope we can do it again. Thank you. Thank you, Anne, for your enriching and challenging lecture. Um, as, as you were speaking about um, uh, the reconstruction, Nugget Coombs, I was sitting thinking that our collections here are, are rich in documentation of what that meant for the nation at that time. And I'm proud to say that we actually have moved on so that if there is such a reconstruction beginning in the population now in any places we'll be collecting up right now. So I'm hoping that in 50 years' time, somebody else can look back and think, yes, that happened. So um, we have time for a few questions um, from the audience. Now, um, for those of you who are regulars, you know the routine. Um, I need you to uh, raise your hand and wait for a microphone to come to you because we have people using the hearing loop. And uh, if you don't use the microphone, they can't actually hear you. And there is, of course, another rule, too, which is that this is a time for questions rather than statements. Um, <laughs> and got the chance to put her manifesto up. Um, but we would actually like you to, um, uh, to, to really frame a question for Anne uh, that, that she can engage with uh, rather than making a statement. So who's going to be the brave person to frame a question <laughs> first for Anne? Put your hand up so that I can see you. OK. There we are. We have a brave person in here. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. My question relates to how do we keep the faith? You are a fine example of a, a warrior who has fought so many fights for women's rights and social equality in Australia, and yet it seems to me the status of women is going backwards. How do we hang on to that fire? Where do we direct it? How do we fight the fight? Continuing. <laughs> um, well, I don't think we've got any choice uh, but to keep going. I mean, I think, um, you know, if you look back over the last 30 or so years, as, um, I, do, as I can, um, being of that age, um, you can see that we have... I mean, I think that the world is transformed today in terms of where women are at. Uh, for all of the things that still remain to be done and for all of the backsliding and for all of the uh, completely uh, intransigent issues such as equal pay, uh, we should never forget the fact that women are everywhere in public life in a way that, that, that simply didn't exist when I was growing up. You know, you, you never saw any women anywhere except at the local shops or, you know, teaching you at school. They were the only women I saw who weren't housewives when I was a kid in the 50s. So that has changed and that is fantastic. It uh, doesn't mean that there's still not a huge amount that needs to be addressed. And um, we just have to keep going. I mean, I can't answer it any other way, except that um, I'm the sort of person I see something that needs to be done, I think, OK, I'll have a bit of a go. And I would like to think that everybody else is the same. Um, we'll take this gentleman down the front, and then uh, in the middle there. So, OK, thank you. I've, I've got you there, so... Uh, my question is, how would you transfer 
you know, in terms of emotional and spiritual sort of qualities you mentioned at the start, how would you transfer that to our leaders? <laughs> well, I think, I think my point was that um, we need a different way. <laughs> Um, because I think our leaders, uh, you know, whether they're good or bad or, you know, whatever we think of leaders as individuals, I think our system is not producing uh, the kind of leadership that we need and uh, we have to change that. And so I am um, suggesting um, an idea and, and, and a bit of a process where we might do that. Um, I know it's uh, probably a very um, optimistic um, thing to be um, suggesting, but I'm hoping that I might spark some... Some, some thoughts and some, some um, receptivity to it. Um, and I think that we would need to produce a different type of leader. And our system needs to encourage and reward different kinds of leadership. And the kind of leadership that's rewarded and encouraged at the moment um, is not serving us well. Um, okay, I'm here just so you can see who's asking the question. Oh, thank, thank you for your talk um, and for bringing us back to sort of a, a values-based policy development model. Um, I really have a, a similar question to the one that you've just heard in that you talked about the need for an emotional and a spiritual dimension in this country, and I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit more, please. Um, yes, I mean, it's quite, it's a, quite a difficult um, question to grapple with and it's not something that... I mean, I'm not somebody who has a, uh, as, as a spiritual person myself and so um, it's not something that comes easily to me. But I think what I have in mind when I'm talking about spiritual... Um, not renewal, but maybe a spiritual awakening is it's, it's, it's really all part of reconciliation. It's part of... Um, um, non-Aboriginal Australia learning to understand and appreciate um, the strength that can come from the land and that I think that if we um, were able to understand, empathise with and perhaps uh, begin to respond that way to our country, we might perhaps treat it a little differently than the way we do now. now in terms of emotional um, reconstruction, I think that we are emotionally very drained and very, um, perhaps very dead in some ways, that we are, um, you know, we, we live at a very kind of superficial level at the moment uh, because we have, we're so, there are so many things happening, there are so many things to, to do and to think about and the, uh, the, the pace at which our society moves and at which the information that's, you know, that, that, that we get uh, loaded and driven at us every, every day... Um, whether it's on social media or old media or, or, or just in conversations with people, we have a huge amount of just sheer information to absorb um, just to get us through the day. And doing that, I think there's been an emotional cost to that, that we kind of live a bit more superficially than perhaps we did before. And, and I don't know how we do it. All I'm saying is I think we need to. Thanks, Anne, for your ideas this evening. I've enjoyed your talk very much. <clears throat> I'm, I'm struck by your notion that we've all become inactive, and I don't know if I totally agree, but certainly I often feel overwhelmed and hopeless. <clears throat> and I'm wondering how or whether you think be, 
being able to educate the broader community, which used to have it via journalism and radio and various other sources, books, and seems to be failing at the moment. Would, would you have some thoughts about how we can educate the community more broadly in the, on the basis that information sometimes can lead to action because you're clear about what you might be able to do? Well, I mean, we've never been more, as I said, never been more information rich. I mean, we've never had um, greater access to diverse sources of information. And, and, I mean, one of the things that I think is fantastic about uh, the information technology is that we can, you know, we're no longer prisoners of what other people want us to, 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 to ingest, that we can just go and seek out information that um, is more in line with, you know, interests that we have that perhaps the mainstream media doesn't think is important. Um, we also, it means that, you know, everybody in, in, is a demagogue these days and, you know, we're kind of um, the barrage of, of propaganda that we get and the barrage of bigotry is, uh, is, is, is very, very um, difficult and very wearing. Um, but I do think that the, the information is there and that we can make use of it and I think we all, as individuals, have to be a bit more creative in the way we do that. And... Um, you know, we, we, we need to sort of self-start these things. You know, we have to, it's going to come from the ground up. It's not going to come from the top. And do you see a place for universal basic income? It's now being trialled around the world in this reconstruction mm. in replacing social security perhaps. Um, you know, I, I didn't sort of go into specific um, policy solutions, but I mean, I did raise the question of, of post-employment occupations. I mean, we are facing a future where there will not be um, sufficient jobs for everybody, and and we uh, that's one of the things that why we, we urgently need to start addressing this and so working out what are we going to do. Um, that just because we're not in employment doesn't mean we're not going to be occupied. We're not going to be doing things. Uh, the question of how we support ourselves and where our income comes from. Um, is a very, very pressing one. And whether it's the basic universal income, as, as a lot of people suggest, or something else, yes, there needs to be something. Um, but I'm not advocating particular solutions. I'm just saying that we have to be aware of what the challenges are and we have to be in a position to, to solve, work out solutions to those. Thank you, Anne, for your um, ideas. A lot of what you said tonight really requires the commitment of uh, a generation younger than the many people in this hall. How do you see that younger generation being inspired to uh, grapple with the issues that you've outlined so well? Oh, I, I don't think there's a problem at all. I think the younger generation is incredibly inspired, but I think a lot of them feel blocked and, you know, not able to um, have the expressions and the opportunities to influence the world in, in, in ways that perhaps my generation did. I mean, I'm, I'm of a generation that's very lucky that we, um, and perhaps in Nugget Coombe's generation, he was running post-war reconstruction at the age of 37. Um, the Whitlam generation, you know, some of the departmental heads in the Whitlam government, Peter Walensky and Jim Spiegelman, were both in their early 30s when they ran government departments. So, you know, I'm, I'm from that generation where young people were given huge opportunities, as I certainly was, and I think it's completely 
unfair, short-sighted and very, um, or very short-sighted of us as a society to be not be giving the same opportunities to young people today. And there's no doubt we have you know, a better educated population, people with incredible enthusiasm, energy and ideas. And if we were to have a department or a ministry or whatever it would be of new century reconstruction, I would expect it to be um, filled with young people. And hope a few of us oldies would be allowed to express the point of view every now and then. <laughs> okay, well, um, I think we might um, draw the formal part of questions um, to a close for this evening, but I'm sure that you're going to join us upstairs for refreshments um, where the conversation can continue. Um, but before we go, I'd just like to ask you to join me again in thanking Anne for... Um, uh, provoking our thoughts tonight in in a week in which I think they're sorely needed. Um, and, of course, to our uh, benefactors, the Maya family and the Maya Foundation, who make this annual lecture, Food for Our Brains, possible. So thank you, Anne. Thank you.